Hello, Padrishioners. Thanks for being part of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, we're honored to serve you in any way we can, and we hope that you're feeling part of what God's doing here at Woodland Hills Church. A couple times in the past, we've invited you, as we do with all the people who attend Woodland Hills Church, to help support the church. And we'd like to do that again with something that we're calling Sustain. In the past, uh, when we've come to you, we've been kind of in uh, well, sort of a financial crisis. The good news is we're not in a crisis now. This is simply something to help us sustain the financial health of the church, which is why we're calling it Sustain. That's not to say that things aren't tight. They're tight. There's a number of staff positions we're not filling for financial reasons, a number of purchases we would have liked to have made that we're not making, and the staff continues to work with uh, reduced salaries. But we're not against the ropes like we were uh, a year ago when we came to you. This is about sustaining the financial health of the church. Last winter, we came to you with something uh, we called 2X, where folks at Woodland Hills Church matched donations made by parishioners, and it was really successful. We raised over $150,000, which really helped us over a hump last year. This year, we're trying to be a little bit more proactive by inviting you to become a sustaining parishioner. We have some generous folks here at Woodland Hills Church that have uh, committed to giving $250 for every person who signs up, every, every parishioner who signs up, um, to give on a regular basis. So, for example, if you committed to giving $10 a month, that would be $120 a year, but with their matching gift, it would be $370. And so would you prayerfully consider being a part of Sustain? Again, it's an honor to serve you in any way we can, and we thank you for being a part of Woodland Hills Church. God bless you. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's so good to see all of you here this morning as we come together and just worship God with passion and then preach the Word. That's what we're about, uh, just getting into the Word. And these days, we're heading down the final stretch of uh, the book of Luke, which doesn't mean anything. It could mean, well, we'll end up in the year 2015, but we are heading down the final stretch. We're dealing with the crucifixion of uh, Jesus, and I'd like to entitle this message, uh, The Real Proof. The Real Proof. Uh, because it contrasts with the false proof. And I'm talking about what is the proof, what is the evidence that you're in the kingdom of God, that you're doing God's work, that God is on your side and you're on God's side. The real proof. And so we're going to read a a passage of Scripture. Some of it overlaps with what we dealt with last week. uh, And we'll take it a little, little beyond that as well. Starting with verse 26. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, that's Golgotha in Aramaic, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, Father, forgive them, release them, for they do not know what they are doing. Talked about that last week. I encourage you to download that sermon if you weren't here. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is in fact God's Messiah, the chosen one, let him prove it. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are in fact the king of the Jews, well then prove it. Save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Well, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself and us. Pray with me here for a moment. 
Father, I thank you for every person in this congregation and every person who's listening through podcasts or television or any other means. We pray, Lord God, that you would just right now invade us and the power of your spirit invade this word and let it go into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives and have a transforming effect. Your ways, Lord, are so different from our ways and we're so inclined in our fallen nature to assume that our ways are right. God, give us humility and the courage to believe differently and to just confront us, Lord. Confront us and teach us your ways. In your name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 I want us to notice a pattern in uh, this passage that we read here uh, this morning. It comes in in the last part of this passage where people are coming up to him and, and they challenge him. With different questions. If you are really who you say you are, if you are the Son of God, well, then prove it. Come down off that cross. If you really are God's anointed one, then prove it. Save yourself. If you really are King of the Jews, then prove it. Save yourself and us. There's a pattern there. Same kind of mindset. You demonstrate that you're on God's side and God's on your side by winning. By operating out of your self-interest and using that to your own advantage and the advantage of your tribe. That's the pattern. In fact, we see this pattern earlier on in the trial. When Jesus was brought before Herod, the guards there were beating him up and they put blindfolders on him and they, and they said, if you, if you really are a prophet, well then prove it. Tell us who's, who's hitting you. We'll stop if you just prove it. And Herod kind of did the same thing when he says, oh, if you're really the, the Messiah that I've been hearing about, well, do some tricks. Prove that in fact you're on God's side and God's on your side and you can get out of this mess. That'd be the proof that really you're for real. It's a pattern that we find here. The assumption behind the whole thing is that the way, the way you prove you're on God's side and God's on your side is by winning, by getting your way, by, by protecting yourself, saving yourself and your tribe. You demonstrate that. That's, that's the proof. That pattern actually goes on, started long before uh, the trial even. In fact, if you go to the uh, early part of the book of Luke, where we were at about 25 years ago, uh, Luke chapter 4, look at the temptation narratives. There you find Satan using this same logic. While Jesus is in the desert, he'd been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. So the devil comes along and says, okay, look at if you're really the son of God, prove it. Feed yourself. Tell these, these stones to become bread. Demonstrate it. Come on, prove it if you really are the son of God. And then the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory and the authority of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, hey, I I will give all these to you. They're mine to give. So I'll give them to you if you'll just submit to me. Uh, you You can be king of the world, Jesus. Prove that you really care about the world. You say you came to save the world. Well, here's your chance. You're going to be king of the world. Now, you've got to do it my way. You've got to lord over people. But think of all the practical good you can do. If you just step into this position, king of the world, you can pass all the right laws. Get all the right people in office. Declare all the right wars. You can free your own people from this Roman oppression. If you really do care about people, well, then prove it. Do something practical. And then, then the devil put them on top of the temple and uh, said, okay, look, at if you really are the son of God, if you really are, are God's anointed, well, then throw yourself off of the temple because God will protect you. Demonstrate it. By how God will protect you, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. The pattern here, the pattern here is that the way you demonstrate that you're on God's side and God is on your side is that 
Well, you operate out of your self-interest. You use it to your advantage and the advantage of your loved ones. You feed yourself when you can. You come down off of the cross. You avoid suffering. You get whatever power you can get to run the world the right way. That's how you prove that you really are on God's side and God's on your side. The same pattern is found in the desert narratives and temptation narratives as is found in the crucifixion narratives. And it's not surprising because the same devil who's working in the temptation narratives was working in the crucifixion narratives. So it's not surprising you find the same mindset in both. We learn from other passages that, that it, was, it was Satan and the powers that was orchestrating the, the crucifixion. Not that humans didn't have a, a role to play. They certainly did. And, 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 and they operated out of their own free will. But behind it all was this mastermind. It says that, that Satan entered into Judas and inspired him to betray Jesus. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the, the principalities and powers were behind the, the, the crucifixion. So it's not surprising that you find the same pattern, the same mindset in both. The way you prove you're on God's side and God is on your side is that you win. You get your way. You, you, you use your position to help yourself and your tribe. We could call this the demonic pattern. The demonic mindset. You prove that you're of God by winning. Now, I want us to notice a different pattern in the same passage. A radically different pattern. They grabbed Simon of Cyrene. He was coming in from the country. He was just coming to celebrate Passover as most Jews in the area did. And maybe he heard the crowds jeering at Jesus and the women wailing, but somehow or other he got into the parade. He was standing there as Jesus was carrying the cross along with the other two criminals on their way to Golgotha. And Jesus, having been beaten, was too weak to carry the cross. Actually, we know from sources that it wasn't the whole cross that criminals carried. That would have been way too heavy. They carried the cross beam called the patabellum. And it weighed about 110 pounds. And so as Jesus is carrying this thing, having been beaten with all the blood loss that had went on, he got too weak to carry it and he fell to the ground. So the Romans used the authority that they had and they just grabbed a bystander. His name was Simon of Cyrene and said, you carry the cross behind Jesus. Now it's interesting that the, the, the authors of the Gospels know who Simon is. They name him. They name where he's from, Simon of Cyrene. They don't just say a bystander. Which, to a lot of scholars, suggests, and I think they're right about this, suggests that Simon had become part of the Christian community. At some point, he became part of the Jesus movement. In fact, we know from Mark that his two sons, Simon and Rufus, were also part of the Christian community that Mark was writing to. So there's something here about about, uh, Simon's cross-carrying behind Jesus that, to Simon, at least was the beginning, the seed was planted for him to come to an understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, a very different kind of proof. It led him into the kingdom movement. This is why throughout church history, Simon has been viewed as sort of the the first one to illustrate what it is to be a true disciple of Jesus. You take up the cross and you follow Jesus. And that fits into a very different pattern we find throughout the Gospels. Because throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus teaching things like this. Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. 
Luke 14 says it in even stronger terms. Whoever doesn't take up the cross, if you're not willing to carry the cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. The teaching that we find throughout the Gospels, here's the pattern, a very different kind of pattern than the one we, we looked at uh, previously. The pattern and proof of being part of the kingdom is not that you're getting your way, not that you're winning, but rather that you're taking up the cross and you're following Jesus. That is the demonstration that you are an authentic disciple. The, the, the pattern that Simon sets, that fits the teachings of Jesus, couldn't be more different from the pattern that Satan sets in the temptation narratives and uh, in the crucifixion narratives. Two radically contrasting different ways of looking at the world. According to the demonic mindset, you prove that you're on God's side and God's on your side by the fact that you can protect yourself. You're protected and you get fed and you get your way. Whereas the pattern that we, is, we see in Simon is that you prove that you belong to God and God is on your side by the fact that you're willing to take up a cross and sacrifice yourself for others and serve others. The demonic pattern is that you prove that God's on your side by winning. Whereas the pattern set with Simon is you prove you're on God's side by serving. For those of you who have been around Woodland Hills for any length of time will understand this language. In, in the demonic pattern, the way you prove that God's on your side and you're on God's side is that you're given power over others. You get to have your way. You get to use power to your own benefit and, and to the benefit of your tribe. That's the evidence that God's on your side and you're on God's side. Whereas the pattern that's set in the teachings of Jesus and is illustrated by Simon is that you prove that you belong to God and God's on your side. You prove that you're part of the kingdom Not by getting power over others, but by exercising power under others. It's the power of the cross. It's the power of self-sacrificial, humble, servant love. That is the real proof of the kingdom. But what we need to understand is this. Satan, who inspired the first pattern, he's called in the Bible the God of this age. He's the principality and power of the air. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, uh, it says that the evil one, that's Satan, has control of the entire world. So it wasn't just the crowds at the time of Jesus that Satan was inspiring to, to ask these kind of mocking questions, this, this logic of, of prove you're on God's side by winning. It wasn't just that crowd that Satan and the powers were influencing. Rather, this demonic force, this principality and power was ushered into the world as the God of this age from the time of the fall. Which means that that mindset has always been influential throughout history. It didn't just begin with the the temptation narratives. Which is why if you look at history, you'll find this way of thinking about things all over the place. It's the evidence that the world is in bondage to the evil one. The kind of thinking that we see illustrated in the temptation narratives and the crucifixion narratives. If you're really of God, well then prove it by by using it to your self-interest. You find that all over the place. Go back as far as you want in history. To ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Babylon, Persia, Egypt. It's all over the place. The thinking is this. The way we prove that our God is the true God, or at least the bigger God, or the smarter God, the stronger God, is that we win. We're more blessed than you. That proves that our God is the true God. We've got more riches than you. We get to eat, but you go hungry. 
Uh, if need be, we conquer you. We rule you. If need be, we kill you. We don't get crucified, but you get crucified. And that proves that God is on our side. We win our wars. We've got the advantages. And throughout history, these, these, these countries were founded on this assumption. The proof that our God is, is, is the true God, the bigger God, the smaller God, is that we're greater than other nations. We win. We get to have our way. And anyone who gets in the way gets squashed. That's proof that we are of God. It's the same kind of thinking that's going on in the crucifixion narratives and the temptation narratives because the same mastermind is behind it all. And see, folks, this is the main reason, the main explanation for why human history is a tragic, sad, macabre river of blood. It's the main way that the devil plays us off one, on, one another. Because see, it's, if, my, if me and my tribe, if our, if our interests conflict with you and your tribe, well, then we got a problem, don't we? And here's how we got to settle it. Uh, we'll see whose God is stronger. We'll see who's got a stronger. So we go to war, we fight, we kill one another, and whoever wins gets to declare that their God was the true God, the right God, the smart God. Same kind of logic as you're getting in the crucifixion and temptation narratives. That's why history is a river of blood. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. So then Assyria comes to power, Persia comes to power, Egypt comes to power. But before too long, it may take a century or so, two centuries, but before long, then some other nation comes to power and proves that their God is stronger by slaughtering them. And it goes round and round and round and round like a mindless broken record and it's still going on today. I want us to see the demonic assumption behind it all. It's so deeply rooted in our psyche though. it's It's part of the fallen culture. It's almost common sense to most people throughout history. And if you're serving the true God, you win. It couldn't be more antithetical to opposite to the pattern that Jesus announces and that Simon lives out. If our eyes get open to it, we will see. Once, you, once you're aware of, of this mindset as a demonic thing and as a temptation, you, you'll see it everywhere when your eyes become open to it. You won't see it if you're buying into it. But once you step outside and start looking at the world through a Simon's perspective, you see it everywhere. It permeates American culture. It permeates the American church. And the most obvious example of it, I suppose, is, is the whole health and wealth gospel. Because they're very explicit about it. The teaching here is this. If you're really a child of God, well then, and you really have faith, well then you'll always be healthy and you'll always be wealthy and you'll always be prosperous. Things will always go your way. The way you know you're a child of God is because uh, you got the nice house and you drive the nice car and you wear the fine clothes and you eat the fine food. That's how you know you're a child of God. And, and if, if that's not happening with you, well then, then you just must lack faith or you're serving a wrong God. Same sort of pagan thinking. But it, it, that, that way is pretty obvious. You see, you see this thinking in a lot of less obvious ways as well. I mean, for example, uh, I recently heard about a person who tried Christianity for a while and then quit. And the reason they quit because it wasn't working. It wasn't working for them. Uh, they went to church for a while, uh, several years, I'm told. And uh, the reason they ended up quitting is because after three or four years of going to church, they still uh, were addicted to drugs and alcohol. Their marriage was still on the rocks. In fact, they had separated, he'd separated from his wife, and he still couldn't hold a job. And so he came to the conclusion that Christianity isn't true because of those problems. 
Look at the assumption. It's the same assumption you find in the crucifixion and temptation narratives. It's the, assumption, the pagan assumption you find throughout history. If, if Jesus Christ is the true God, well, then he's supposed to come down and magically take away my drug problem and my alcohol problem. And he's supposed to magically fix my marriage, and he's supposed to magically give me a job that I can't possibly lose. And it's tragic, because if you're sitting around just waiting for God to come down and, and take away all your problems and fix your marriage and give you a job you can't possibly lose, you might be waiting a very, very, very long time, because that's not God's gig. That's the way the pagans think, but that's not God's gig. And what's really sad is if you did God's gig and you picked up the cross and started serving people and loving people and thinking about the welfare of others, you might just find that you've got more power to confront that drug addiction and uh, alcohol problem. And you might just find you developed the kind of character that could actually save your marriage. And you might just find that you got a character that can hang on to a job. And I'm not saying there's a magic pill on this at all. It's always hard work. But see, the way of God is not the magical way of just coming down and taking things away. No, it's the way of the cross. Take up your cross and start following him. This this pagan thinking, the demonic mindset, permeates the very air we breathe. That's why we need to be reminded about it all the time. Here's another example of it. Got several months ago an angry email. I get those once in a while. I expect I might get another one after this message. <laughs> Goes with the territory. <laughs> but the person was saying, and I, I, I've heard this a hundred times, and it's an argument that's used throughout our history. How can you possibly say that America is not God's favorite nation? Called to be a beacon of light to the world. How could you possibly say that? The, it, it's obvious. And the evidence the person gave that America is the favored nation is, well, look how blessed we are. We've got more riches than any country has ever had. We've got more rights than any country has ever had. And God's been on our side during all the battles, at least until recently. We've won all, all the wars that we fought. And, and, and so that's, to this person, is obvious that, that America is a unique and called nation, the last great hope of the world. Look at the assumption. See, every country that's ever been founded, every great nation has thought this way. It's just that you've got a different God that you're giving the credit to. Proof that we are the special nation is, is that, that we win, we get to have our way. And the, the country was founded on this sort of assumption. It used to be called manifest destiny, which simply means obvious providence. It's obvious. It was obvious to a lot of white Europeans that God wanted us to come over here and, 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 and conquer the land and, and, and uh, take it away from the Native Americans. And the proof of that is that we did it. <laughs> Kind of hard to argue with that. We did it, so God must have been on our side. And it was obvious providence to a lot of white Europeans that that God was in favor of us getting wealthy on the bloody backs of African slaves. And the proof of that is, well, we did it. And that must mean that God's on our side. And it's the same logic that goes on today. The fact that we've got these power and these riches, never mind how we got the stuff, but the fact that we do have it, well, that just proves, it's obvious, that we're God's favorite nation. And in reality, the only thing that that proves, I mean... If, if, if having all this stuff was proof that God's on your side and you're on God's side, then wouldn't you think that all the rich people in the world would be the most godly? Now, I, there are a lot of godly rich people, I don't deny that, but come on now, there's no rhyme or reason to how righteous you are and, and, and how, how advantageous things are going for you. The only thing that that kind of thinking proves is that you're thinking like pagans have always thought throughout history. You're thinking the bloodbath logic. You're thinking the demonic logic. The logic that says to Jesus, come on, if you're really the son of God, get down off the cross, protect yourself, feed yourself, cash in on this thing, use it to your own advantage. Come on, if God's on your side, he wouldn't be having you suffer like this. 
It permeates the culture. The real proof, Holy Spirit, help us to internalize this. The real proof, the real proof that you are uh, doing God's work, that you're part of the kingdom, that God's on your side and you're on God's side. The real proof is not that you're getting your way, but that you're picking up a cross and you're serving people and you're loving people. The real proof that you're on God's side and God's on your side is not that you're getting your way and enforcing your way, but that you're crucifying yourself daily so you don't have to get your way. The real proof that you're on God's side and God's on your side is that you're learning how to put God's interest and the interest of others ahead of your own. It's a fundamental teaching of the New Testament. You hear it over and over and over again. The real proof that you're part of the kingdom. Oh, it goes so against our common sense fallen assumptions under the influence of the principality and power. But the real proof that you're on God's side and God's on your side is not that you're having power over people to enforce your allegedly more righteous and smarter ways on, on other people. No, the proof of the kingdom is that you're exercising power under people and you're learning how to love them and you're learning how to serve them. The proof that you're in the kingdom, the proof that you're in the kingdom is that you're developing a heart for the poor and a heart for the disenfranchised and the oppressed and the homeless. And maybe you're even altering fundamental aspects of your lifestyle to free up resources to serve these folks. The proof that you're in the kingdom and God's on your side and you're on God's side is that you're learning how to love your enemies and to turn the other cheek and to swear off all violence. The proof that you're in the kingdom is that you and your tribe are finding the joy of looking like Jesus and living like Jesus and thinking like Jesus and loving like Jesus and sacrificing like Jesus. That is the kingdom. Because the kingdom always looks like Jesus. Dying on Calvary for the very people who are crucifying and praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I know this goes against such a core assumption that that not only permeates our culture, but has permeated the world from the beginning, but how we need to confront it. This demonic mindset. We, we won't make any significant headway in our life in terms of looking like Simon, taking up our cross and following Jesus. We won't make significant headway unless we confront this thing head on and identify it as a temptation, a demonic temptation, the thinking of Satan. This whole idea that you prove that you're close to God by winning. No, you prove, you prove that you're on God's side by taking up the cross. So we've got to identify. There really is a principality in power who is strongly influential throughout the, the, the world, pollutes the environment, the very air we breathe. And that principality in power is perpetually at work, among other things, to get us to believe that our stuff, our riches, our benefits, all of that is... Evidence that we're the special people of God. It wreaks havoc with everything that the gospel is about. Bottom line, folks, is we are called to be a, a community of people. All Jesus followers are called to be this. But I'm going to talk right now about Woodland Hills Church. We are called to be a community of people, not who grab hold of, lust after, crave after power so we can enforce our allegedly superior ideas and morality on other people. No, we've been doing that throughout history. It's nothing but blood and anger and war. No, our job isn't to get power over people. Our job is to be a community of people who exercise power under people. We're to be a community of foot washers. We're to be a community of, of cross cares. Uh, we're, we're to be a community of people who, who just find satisfaction and fullness in serving the world around us. It is not our call. For example... To come up with and enforce upon the culture uh, our ideas of what government should do about illegal immigration, for example. That's not our call. We don't have any superior insights on that. We might even disagree upon what government should do about that. But it is our call 
It is our call to take up our cross on behalf of illegal immigrants and to love illegal immigrants and to serve them and to sacrifice for them and to embrace them. Amen. Because frankly, I don't care if you're a U.S. citizen or not. If you're here, your citizenship is with the kingdom of God and that makes you a brother and sister. So we are without question or judgment when I embrace you, come around you, serve you. That's the kingdom of God. And it's not our job as kingdom people to come up with and try to enforce some superior ideas about what government should do about the abortion controversy. We may even have share the same pro-life convictions but disagree upon what government should do. But what difference does that make? Our call as kingdom people is to take up the cross on behalf of women who have unwanted pregnancies and, and to sacrifice for them and walk with them and serve them and love them and embrace them without judgment. To make it feasible to go full term. To make it feasible to go full term. Because frankly, anybody can carry a sign and shout their opinions. That doesn't cost anything. Uh, But to come around somebody and say, no, no, we want to walk with you and we want to serve you to make this possible. That is the kingdom. I'm so blessed to hear about a small group that recently did that. Just came around a a pregnant teenager and said, we'll walk with you and we're going to help you uh, through this thing. That is the kingdom. It's not about what your opinions are. It's about how you bleed. It's not the job of kingdom people to come up with the right solution and enforce the solution upon what government should do uh, in defining marriage. But it is the call of the kingdom to say, uh, how do we pick up the cross for gay folks and love gay folks and embrace gay folks without judging them and just to come out or to, to bleed for them? That is the kingdom. It's not even our job. It's not even our job to come together and come up with the right solution and enforce the right solution. Upon what government should do about poverty. It's possible we have the same convictions but still disagree on what government should do. But so what? That's not our call. Our call is to come under people, to take up the cross on behalf of the poor, and to sacrifice on behalf of the poor, and to house the homeless, and to clothe the naked, and to welcome the outcast, to bleed. It's all about how do we bleed. And always be living in that kind of question. We're not to be a community of people who have power over others. Now, that's what everyone's trying to do. What's unique about the kingdom is so radically different from the ordinary way of thinking in this world. But the, the pattern of Jesus and the pattern of Simon, it's the opposite of the pattern of Satan. You, come, you demonstrate that you're part of the kingdom by coming under people and serving people and sacrificing for people, carrying our cross. See, this is why we at Woodland Hills Church, we, we, we uh, emphatically are always teaching against violence. Because the violence is the ultimate power over gig. And so the call of the kingdom, and it's explicit in the New Testament, is that to follow Jesus means you learn to love your enemies and you swear off all violence. It's, 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 that's a power over thing. We're called to be a power under people, uh, under people. This is also why we teach emphatically against judgment. It's not our job to be judging people. Now, we all need accountability groups where people are invited in on our life to lovingly help us live out the call of the kingdom because it means you've got to swim upstream and you can't do that alone. We all need accountability groups, but outside of those contexts, it's never our job, never our job to be judging others because judge, to judge someone, you've got to be superior to them. But that's a power over move. It's a power over mindset. And to follow Jesus means you've set that aside. You die to that way of thinking. If you think about it, all these folks on the, in the crucifixion narrative, they were judging Jesus. I'll bring out their little inner accuser there. Our job, Jesus tells us explicitly, is to do the opposite of judging. Whatever sin we see in another person, we consider that to be minor, whatever it is, compared to ours, which is a tree trunk coming out of our eye. Okay? We teach against violence, we teach against judgment, we teach against 
the, the idea that their assumption that we're, our job is to run politics because all of that is power over. And we are called to be a power under people. What, del- what, what really delights my heart, folks, is that I see us moving in that direction. I, I, I am so happy when I see evidence that, in fact, we're living out the unique Jesus-looking kingdom and setting aside all of the other stuff. Uh, it's an honor to serve a congregation who's moving in that direction. We have growing to do for sure. But we're, but we're going in the right direction. My sense is that this year and the next year, God's going to be pushing us even further on, on carrying the cross individually and collectively for those who are hurting, for those who are outcasts. But, you know, it, it, things like this. We're doing this Project Home thing right now where we just open up the church uh, every evening for the homeless to come in. And uh, we needed like 140, 150 volunteers to pull that off. And, and within a week, we had those slots filled. See, that just, that's a sign that we're getting it. People stepping up, saying, okay, I'll sacrifice my time, my resources. Well, our last food drive, we collected 12,000 pounds of groceries, the most we've ever collected. And some folks could only bring a can of soup. Other people brought 10 bags. But see, we stocked the food shelves, and now we're able to feed people who are, are in this economy, increasingly going without food. And we'll probably have to do it in another couple of months because the need keeps on going up. But that's what the kingdom is about. You carry the cross for the sake of those who are hurting. I love the fact that we're always sending out missions team and, and, and none of them are out there just to hand out tracks. No, they, they build houses for the homeless. We just had our, our youth group, Echo, went out to West Virginia and built a home for, for the homeless. See, that's the kingdom in action. I love that kind of thing. I love the fact that we have a counseling center that offers up counseling free for those who can't afford it. I love the fact that we've got volunteers who host funerals here all the time for people in the community who don't have a church. And, and so it's just a way of, of, of serving them. I love all the, fa- the fact that we've got these volunteers, uh, tons of them helping out in the refuge in our 18 support groups or at Discover Woodland Hills or, or Discover the Kingdom or in our children's ministry. It's all about service. It's all about bleeding for others. I love the fact that we have a disabilities agency that operates out of Woodland Hills Church. I love coming to work. And you see these folks who've got mental and, and physical disabilities. It, it brings life to the place. It's, it's what we're, to, we're supposed to be doing. We've got a Hmong church and a Spanish-speaking church that meets here in our building. And we could go on and on and on. You, see, you saw with the, the undercurrent thing, our, our facilities team. You know, they come here and they serve by, by keeping the building running. But there's always these opportunities to just come around people. And, 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 and serve them and sacrifice for them and bleed for them. That is the kingdom. It's not about power over. It's always about power under. The power to change lives by how you love them and serve them. Our attitude, our attitude towards all people at all times is to be just this. That they were worth Jesus dying for. Because that's the only thing we really know about them. And our job is to reflect that value system by how we talk to them, how we interact with them, and how we sacrifice for them. That is the kingdom. That is the kingdom. And see, what you find, I close with this, is that Simon, when he carried the cross, what he discovered at some point is real life. That led him to become part of the Christian community. And there, too, he's an example. Because when you pick up the cross... When you start bleeding for folks, when you start living a life that is, is, is geared for service and sacrifice, you and your small group, your tribe, you're living in the question, how can we make a difference by sacrificing for others? When you live that way, well, Jesus said it best. If you lose your life, you're going to find it. You'll find a depth of joy and peace and empowerment that otherwise you'll never, ever know. 
the joy of carrying the cross. To the world, it looks like foolishness. It's stupid. It confronts the most fundamental demonic assumption that makes the world go around. But that is where life is. That is where joy is. That is where peace is. If you, if you bought into the prove that you're part of God by winning game, I guarantee you that you are, you're, you have, on some level, you're an angry person. Because, see, if you're playing that game, it's always us versus them. And there's always this conflict. And you're always angry at the people who are standing in your way. Want a good example of that? Just watch cable news. This is angry. You've got to demonize them because you're the righteous person. You're on God's side, not them. But they're claiming they're on God's side, that they're righteous and smart. So, boom, we've got to have our little verbal wars and, when possible, physical wars. No, that, there's nothing but, but conflict there. But when you surrender that and you realize your job isn't to fix the world and run the world and, and all that, but, but rather you see that as a temptation and you just live your life with an eye towards service, there is a peace that invades your being and a joy that can invade your being. And an empowerment to start living more victorious that invades your being. Uh, irony is that when you lose your life, you find it. Lord, help us to be a people who identify that way of living and that form of life. So I end with this question. Maybe you want to close your eyes and just let the Holy Spirit uh, apply this to your life. Have you to any degree, and I'm talking to people in the congregation and people listening through podcasts, all of us. Have you to any degree bought into the lie that you prove that you're on God's side by... How well things are going for you. How you get your way. One way to get at the question is to ask the question, when things don't go to your way, do you start to question God? Is that evidence that, 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 that you're not serving the true God? See, that, that just reveals an assumption there. If you identify that, will you now make a decision to let that go and identify it as a temptation? I guarantee you that way of thinking is going to try to come back. Because there's a principality in the power of the air who's always trying to make it come back. But will you commit to viewing that as a demonic temptation? Now, God still wants to bless you. It's okay to pray for blessing, for sure. But it's not proof. It's not the proof that you're on God's side. If it was, well, then all the righteous people would be the ones who are rich. And it doesn't work like that. No. We let go of that as the proof and now embrace as the evidence that you really belong to the kingdom... The evidence is that you are carrying a cross. You're choosing to bleed for others, sacrifice for others in ways that you don't have to. That's the mark of a true disciple. And then let's ask the Holy Spirit, how would you have me move forward in this? Maybe you're already serving others and sacrificing for others. But is there something that God would say, okay, I want you to take it a step further now? Maybe there's a lifestyle adjustment to make in order to serve others. Holy Spirit, we just want to open ourselves up to you to talk to us. And our commitment is that whatever it takes, whatever the cross, we want to serve you, Lord Jesus, and serve your people and serve the world by taking up the cross. And as I close in prayer, I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward, and I invite you to come forward to pray with these folks if there's any need that you have that you would like to pray about, or if you want to surrender your life to Jesus and get started on the kingdom walk, come forward and talk to these folks. I want to remind you about the homework that's in the uh, bulletin, always helpful on applying this throughout the week, because that's where it really counts. So Father, we just now commit ourselves to you. Free us from the bondage of the common sense of the world that mocks Jesus on the cross and thinks that winning is the evidence of being on your side and you being on our side. Free us from that, Lord God, and free us to be a people who take up a cross. Open our eyes to see the temptation and resist it, to think in the ways of the world, and open our hearts to be a people who are willing to bleed on behalf of others. A community that just makes a difference and advances your kingdom. 
by being foot washers, by being cross carriers, by being lovers of all people. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's kingdom people said, God bless you guys. Go out and serve the world.